This episode of Saturday Morning Rewind is brought to you by Voice Chasers. Find out more about the voice actor you hear on this episode at voicechasers.com. Voice Chasers, celebrating the art of voice acting since 1996. Welcome to Saturday Morning Rewind, a show dedicated to the love of animation and feeling like a kid again. So let's go back in time to when cats defended Third Earth. Sword of Omens, give me sight beyond sight. A masked duck protected the streets of St. Canard. I am the terror that flaps in the night. And knowing was half the battle. Yo, Joe! Let's go back with Saturday Morning Rewind and your host... Tim Nidell. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Saturday Morning Rewind. I'm your host, Tim Nidell. Please follow us online. It's SaturdayMorningRewind.com. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Saturday Rewind. And of course, like us on Facebook. Just type in Saturday Morning Rewind. On today's episode, I have literally one of the greatest voice directors of all time. Go look at her resume, and I guarantee most of her work is in your top favorite cartoons of all time. And of course, I'm talking about the one and only Andrea Romano, who worked on Batman the Animated Series, Animaniacs, Smurfs, Tiny Toon Adventures, DuckTales, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Pinky and the Brain, Freakazoid, Reboot, The Jetsons. I can literally go on and on for hours. So she is seriously one of the greatest voice directors and casting directors of our generation. And during my interview, one of our faithful listeners, Mike Clemens, gets to ask a question because he is a faithful Patreon supporter. So thank you so much, Mike. And if you want to help out our show, go to the donation tab on our website, SaturdayMorningRewind.com. And check out our Patreon campaign. You can get your name listed in an episode and also get Ask a Question to upcoming guests. So if you like what you hear and want to help out an independent podcast like Saturday Morning Rewind, please check out our Patreon campaign. But I guess that's about it. This is a great interview. I had a great time talking with Andrea, one of the sweetest ladies I've ever had on the show. So here she is, Andrea Romano. Let's start off the interview because our show is all about reliving childhood. I know I started the show when my when my father passed away six years ago, and wanted to relive my amazing childhood that he helped give me. Uh, tell me, hey. tell me about your childhood. Did you enjoy cartoons as a kid, and what kind of things were you into as a kid? I loved cartoons. I've been the biggest cartoon fan since the first time I ever saw one on the air, uh-huh. and I I'm one of eight kids. Wow. Uh, a very large family grew up on eastern Long Island. Both mom and dad worked. So when I would get home from school around, whatever it was, those days, 3 o'clock-ish, I would rush to my mother's and dad's bedroom, which was really kind of forbidden. You weren't supposed to watch TV. Yep. You were supposed to do chores. <laughs> and so I would sit on her bed, on mom and dad's bed, and watch cartoons. And they were the classic um, Hanna-Barbera cartoons were my favorites. Those were the days of Huckleberry Hound and the Flintstones and... Um, the Jetsons and Yogi Bear, and and they were also those earlier ones that I really loved. And hold on, because I actually pulled this up so I could speak intelligently about them. Uh-huh. It was when there were things like um, uh, Huckleberry, uh, Huckleberry Hound, uh, which was my personal favorite. Huckleberry Hound was, but Quick Draw McGraw. 
Yeah. And and the Magilla Gorilla Show and Wally Gator, Touche Turtle, Lippy the Lion, all of those really silly, wonderful, limited animation cartoons were absolutely my favorite. I took comfort in the fact that when Fred Flintstone would run through his tiny house, <laughs> that he would run for what seemed like miles and pass the same table and vase ten times. Yep, yep. For some reason, that was comforting <laughs> to me. I loved it. And um, and aside from that, I loved the Jay Ward cartoons, the um, the uh, um, fractured fairy tales, yes, and yes, um, yes. Bullwinkle and Rocky. I just I loved those cartoons, and I know I didn't understand a lot of those jokes when I was a kid. Yeah, but that was the joy of those cartoons and the classic Warner Brothers cartoons. I know I didn't get a lot of jokes, but I loved it. And then as an adult, I watched and went and saw a whole other aspect of those cartoons that I didn't know when I was a kid, which was the adult humor, which made it the kind of cartoons that I then wanted to make as a professional, which were the cartoons that parents and kids could sit down and watch together and enjoy. And that was the pleasure of making shows like Tiny Toons and Animania and picking the brain because they had legs. They had time on their side. People liked to watch them as kids and enjoy them as adults, and that's what you wanted to do. But why I was telling you about watching the cartoons as a kid on my mother's and dad's bed was I'd hear mom's car drive up on the driveway at, at like 5 o'clock at night and yeah. realize, oh my lord, I haven't done the chores. <laughs> And so I became, like, incredibly good at folding a load of clothes really, really fast <laughs> and, you know, smoothing my mom's bed so she could never tell yep, I was there. Yep. And many, many decades later, Tim, I found out that I had been totally busted from the get-go because those were the days when TVs were tube TVs. When you turned them off, they clicked for quite some time as those tubes cooled down. Yeah. So my mom knew. <laughs> she knew for years. And we had a good joke about it many years later when I finally started to achieve some success in the animation world. And I was like, Mom, did you ever think that would pay off? The fact that I would run home to watch TV <laughs> and watch those cartoons, it actually paid off that I had a career in this industry. It yeah. was a good yuck. Oh, and my bad. to go from being such a huge Hanna-Barbera fan as a kid to actually working for them and working with the cast, that had to have been mind-blowing. It was unbelievable. The first day I worked at Hanna-Barbera, there was a session with some of the classic voices. And so I met Dawes Butler. And Dawes Butler, you know, the voice of so many classic oh, yeah. uh, Hanna-Barbera cartoon voices, he was a tiny man, a huge talent, but a small um, man. He wasn't much taller than I, and I'm just barely five foot one. <laughs> wow. And he was so generous and so kind and so sweet. And I, I shook his hand and said, Hi, I'm Andrea Romano. I've just been hired on as the casting director here. Ginny McSwain has moved on to do some directing for Marvel. And it's such a joy for me to meet you, Mr. Butler, because Huckleberry Hound was my favorite cartoon. And he spoke to me as Huckleberry Hound. Yep. And Tim, I just lost it. I, I burst into tears and cried because... You know how a smell can move you in time? Oh, yeah. You smell a smell, and you're, all of a sudden you remember the smell of your school bus mm -hmm. seats that took you to school when you were in first grade. Well, hearing Dawes do Huckleberry Hound absolutely transported me in time to being a little kid sitting on my mom and dad's bed watching those cartoons and just 
it transported me and and it just was one of those moments that you had no idea how you would react and and tears it was a, a joyful tears but it was just that moment of being drawn back in time and and the, those simpler easier days before the responsibilities of adulthood took over no when really your biggest responsibility was folding the clothes <laughs> <laughs> i i think about later how i i had this visual image and i'm going to have to have my husband draw this for me because my husband is a, a character designer and artist and uh-huh. fabulous in it. And, and I had this image of all these classic characters, Huckleberry Hound and Quick Draw McGraw and Augie Doggy and Doggy Daddy, standing outside my office at uh, Hanna-Barbera with their resumes in hand looking <laughs> for future work. And I, just, I, I was so thrilled that I was in a position to hire these actors, which I did continue to do for as long as I could. Of course, why not? Why not? <laughs> Yep, absolutely. How how did you get your foot into the door of of directing and voice casting? In such a glorious, wonderful way. I started as an actress in New York on the East Coast. I moved to Southern California to San Diego, where no one told me there was no acting work. You know, a handful of jobs can be had down in San Diego. The Old Globe, the San Diego Rep, and really community theater is about the rest. And then a dear friend that went to college with me called me one day and said, there's a temporary position opened at a very large talent agency in Los Angeles in the voiceover department. They need someone to come and temp for someone who's been in a car accident and she will be coming back, but they need someone just to handle giving the actors their appointments and scheduling their, their jobs. And I thought, ooh, voiceover, I know nothing about that field. Let me go you know, uh, um, interview for this job and see whether or not it's something that interests me in in whatever capacity. I had Mm -hmm. no idea. And so I went over to Abrams Ubaloff and worked for Don Pitts, who at the time was one of the top agents, probably had 350 constantly working clients, all of the top uh, voice actors, especially especially at Hanna-Barbera, June Foray, Frank Welker, um, you know, Paul Winchell, all these remarkable voiceover talents. And I went over, uh, interviewed for the job. He hired me practically on the spot. And I worked there, <clears throat> oddly enough, with my dear friend, Susan Chico, who, as soon as I finish this interview, I'm about to drive out to Palm Springs wow. to spend the week with her. Oh, wow. And she became my assistant for the last 40-some-odd years. <laughs> and... Um, and she was there at Abrams Rubeloff. She worked for Noel Rubeloff. And I, I learned so much in the two weeks that I was there. And then Vanessa Gilbert, who I was temping for, called me and said, Andrea, I'm, I'm not, once I do heal from this car accident I've been in, I'm not going to come back to Abrams Rubeloff. I'm going to go off and do something different, which she did. She ultimately opened her own talent agency. And we've been dear friends for the last 40 years. Man. And then uh, Hanna-Barbera, I'm sorry, I'm, Abram Zubaloff made me an agent. They franchised me. And I was, for a short period of time, the youngest agent in Hollywood. And I was representing these remarkable people who did voiceover, Linda Gary and June Foray. I mean, these remarkably talented people. And, um, and, and really got my foot in the door as a voiceover agent there, got my feet wet, as it were. And then I was headhunted by a small talent agency that didn't have a voice department but desperately needed one. And at the time, and, and still pretty much, voiceover agencies are located inside commercial, on-camera, 
talent agencies. And what had happened at Special Artists was all of the clients there wanted to get voiceover activity. It was becoming a much bigger field. For a long time, nobody wanted to do voiceover. It was the bastard child of the Mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. It was kind of, well, yeah, I did a voiceover. Yeah, well, I did a cartoon. And then suddenly, people got to realize what it was like to do a cartoon. You didn't have to memorize. You didn't have to look the part. You didn't have to dress up and wear makeup for the the work. And suddenly everybody wanted to do voiceover. So people who had on-camera commercial representation and wanted voiceover representation who were special artists had to go outside of special artists to find their voiceover activity. And other agencies who had voiceover departments started to kind of pilfer those clients because they'd say, yes, we'll we'll represent you for voiceover, but we want your on-camera work as well. So special artists started to lose their on-camera clients because they had no voiceover department. And they had hunted me and asked me to come over and start their department, which I did. And it was an absolute pleasure to create this department, which was very different than working from an established department. But I did have celebrity clients like James Coburn and Martin Sheen, and they helped pay for a, a, a burgeoning starting department. Yeah, no kidding. And then I was able to start voiceover talent like Dave Coulier and Roger Rose and uh-huh. Laurie Frazier and a lot of people who then became good, serious working voiceover talent. Um, and then after being a special artist for a couple of years and having worked with Ginny McSwain, who was the casting director at Hanna-Barbera for many years while I was an agent, she called me up one day and said, I'm leaving Hanna-Barbera. I'm going to Marvel to direct. Um, And to make a very long story short, uh, (laughs) do you have any interest in coming over to interview for the job? And and in typical animation style, my phone was left spinning in the air (laughs) as I jumped into my car and drove to Hanna-Barbera to be the first to interview for the job. And again, I was hired within 24 hours and went over and started working with my mentor and the genius that was Gordon Hunt. We just lost him this last year. And absolute genius. And anybody who works as a voice director in animation owes Gordon a a debt of gratitude because Mm -hmm. he set the standard. He made it an industry. There there were no real voiceover directors until he set the standard and, and created this field. And then all of us who got to work with him and understand how to prep a script and how to cast a show and It was a remarkable training ground. And then I was very lucky that many of the people, I was at Hanna-Barbera for five and a half years, and many of the people I was there with um, broke off and formed Warner Brothers TV animation, which Mm. didn't exist. Yeah. And then they asked me if I would come over as a freelance director. And just and in between these times, Tim, um, while I was on staff at Hanna-Barbera, I got a phone call from a guy who had been someone I did a lot of business with. He was an advertising agency exec at Leo Burnett. His name was Tom Ruzica. And he called me up and said, I've left the advertising business and I've come over to Disney TV animation, which again had just formed. We're now talking mid-80s, probably somewhere around 86 or so. And he called me and said, we're doing uh, a show called DuckTales, <laughs> based on Huey, Louie, and Dewey, and uh, Donald, and Scrooge McDuck. And would you come and audition 
for a voice director. And their plan was to have five different directors direct the first of the five episodes, make a decision as to who they wanted to do the remaining 60. Now, this is a time when cartoons were ordered in 13 episodes or 26 episodes. So to be offered a 65-episode series or the, the opportunity of possibly doing 65 episodes was a huge, huge appeal. And so someone went in and directed the first episode, and I went in and directed the second episode, and they said after I directed it, they weren't even going to audition anybody else. <laughs> they just offered me the remaining wow. of the 65. And I was lucky enough to do all of them, and, and more, and a movie. And it was an absolute joy to work with the likes of um, Lucy Taylor and Terry McGovern and the wonderful, the late Alan Young Mm -hmm. and um, all the wonderful people that worked on both sides of the glass on that series. And as I said, we just did a 30th uh, anniversary of it recently. And and how I managed to, Tim, I don't know how I managed to stay on staff at Hanna-Barbera and I told them about what I was doing and they gave me their blessing. One day a week, one half day a week, I would go over and direct DuckTales. Um, and that lasted for the uh, remainder of the series until um, the Warner Brothers guys came to me and said, can you come over? And then at that point, yeah. uh, Hannah Barbera said, nah, you got to make a decision, Andrea. And so it was really, really scary, as you can imagine, to leave an on-staff job mm-hmm. that gives you, you know, all kinds of benefits and paid vacations and paid sick days and insurance and all that to become a freelance director where I only had one gig. It was Tiny Toon Adventures for um, Warner Brothers. The, it had a, a, a major draw to me because the executive producer was a guy named Steven Spielberg. Oh, and so man. that did appeal to me. <laughs> um, and so I took the jump. I took the leap and knock wood for, you know, I left in 1991. And since then, I hadn't stopped working until I retired a month ago. That's insane. So, I mean, that remarkable. Your resume is just impeccable. And like I told you guys during the panel, DuckTales is still my favorite cartoon of all time. And honestly, those first five episodes are my favorite out of all of them. Oh, that's so cool of you to say. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. We were just getting our feet under ourselves, and, and it was special. It was a really special series, and, and it was so heartfelt and sweet. And everybody who worked on it wanted so much to be a part of it and to make it the best possible show. And a lot of money was put into it and a lot of effort and a lot of heart. And, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at a show. If everybody isn't interested in making it the best that they can, it it won't play. And that happened with DuckTales and that also happened with Tiny Toons and then with Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain. Mm -hmm. Everybody working on it wanted it to be the best. And I've been so lucky in my career that that that's existed all the way through one of the most recent shows I directed, which was Puss in Boots, yeah. based on the yeah. features. But um, we made, the, what do we make? 78 episodes for DreamWorks and um, Netflix. And they're available now, and there's still many episodes that haven't aired yet. And that's also an instance where it was a good budget, but it looks and sounds way better than the budget it had because <laughs> everybody wanted it to be special. Yeah. And everybody gave their heart and soul into it, and it's a remarkable show. So I was lucky that my resume is filled with shows like that because I happen to have a knack for finding or helping be a part of putting together a team of people who are going to make really good shows because they're going to put their hearts into it. Really cool. 
I have a couple of uh, fan questions I wanted to ask you. Um, so I, I do a yes, Patreon, a Patreon campaign. One of my Patreon supporters, Mike Clemens wanted me to ask you, um, if you've ever had to fire an actor and what was that process like for you? It's horrible. And yes, I have. And it breaks my heart anytime I have to do it. And I will do anything I can to save that actor the role. I will keep them after the recording session and work with them, work with them. I've done that many times in an attempt to keep the role. And sometimes I win and sometimes <laughs> I don't. And I, I, it breaks my heart. Having been an actor first, you know, that was how I got into the industry first was being an actor. And, and knowing how hard it is to even get in front of a casting director and then getting the job and then losing the job. Horrible. So I spent many, many, many hours trying to save them. And if I can't, I, the first thing I do is call the agent right away and explain the why of it. And yeah. sometimes it's as simple as I brought in your actor. I'm talking to the agent. I brought in your actor to be a guest on a series that had an established main cast. And unfortunately, their voice was so similar to somebody who was a, an established character, a regular character on the series. And no matter how hard we tried, we couldn't get their, the, this guest to sound different enough from the established actor. And mm. that's why they were replaced. It had nothing to do with their performance. It had nothing. And, and I always try to explain exactly why it happened, because I want to be I want to treat actors the way I wanted to be treated when I was an actor. Yep, yep. And so that's with respect. And every once in a while you have to tell them it just wasn't a good fit. The actor didn't understand the energy of the series. They were doing, you know, Animaniac-style acting instead of Batman-style acting, and I could uh. not for the life of me get them to, to do it. Or... I just made the mistake of casting the wrong actor. It's completely my fault. Mm. I cast the wrong actor. This was not a good match. This actor didn't fit the role the way I thought they might, and my fault. So, yes, I did do that, and it broke my heart, and I hate it, and I still hate it. Whenever oh, wow. it has to happen, it, it hurts my heart. Now, you don't have to answer this, but is that possibly what happened with Tim Curry and the Joker? Because I know he was originally cast as the Joker in Batman Animated Absolutely. Series. That's exactly what happened. Uh, a, a new producer was brought in. He didn't care for Tim's work. I brought Tim back at least two times, and we worked together and tried, tried, tried to save him. And, you know, don't, you know to be perfectly 100% honest with you, I would not have replaced Tim. I, I thought Tim's performance oh, yeah. was excellent. Yeah. I thought he did a beautiful Joker. And I probably... I think I'm the only person on the planet to have the entire one, entire episode with Tim Curry as oh, the voice serious? of the Joker. Wow. It's not a mixed episode. It doesn't have sound effects or mm -hmm. music. It doesn't have ADR. It's a very, very rough cut. But I think I'm the only one. It's on VHS, I believe. Wow. And um, because it wasn't ultimately produced, finally, it, it, nobody has it. But I, um, I love what Mark Hamill did. Yeah. No, I'm not, yeah. I don't want to badmouth any of that. I thought it was a wonderful performance and you know of course he's still doing it and Mark is a dear friend and Tim is a dear friend but I never ever would have replaced Tim and I did work really hard but you know my job is to please an awful lot of people I'm lucky because I'm a casting director and I'm a director, so that gives me kind of two votes in, in the process. Uh -huh. But ultimately, it's a group decision, and if I can't sway enough people, at a certain point, I have to just give in and say, okay, I'm not going to fight yep. you, because I would have had to fight them on every single episode <laughs> to, get, to keep Tim in the job. And that's not a good feeling for the director. It's not a good feeling for the actor. They're always waiting for the axe to fall. And so I gave in and said, okay, we'll find another actor, and we were fortunate enough that Mark wanted to play, and he was excellent. 
keto diet, so it did work out, but that was hard. Very, very hard. Yeah, we're going to go back to that in just a few minutes, but I have one more fan question. from. I just got an email yeah. literally like an hour ago from a listener of mine. A very sweet email, and he wanted me to ask you. He's very passionate about getting into voiceover. What kind of mm-hmm. steps should he take, and who should he speak with to kind of proceed? Okay. Is he local to L.A.? Um, let's see the email. I'm not quite sure. Okay. The, the, the main thing is, ultimately, you're going to have to come to L.A. That's where the majority of work is done. Yes, there is technology, satellite technology, excuse me, satellite technology that allows us to record actors from all over the world. But you're not going to be able to start that way. You have to be known before you're going to be recorded from yeah. some other place. The two major hubs of animation voicing are Los Angeles and Vancouver. So you'd have to be in one of those two places. Before one makes the big step to move there, though, I would suggest, number one, a million times over, take acting classes. Yes, it yes. doesn't matter how good you may be at voices. It doesn't matter how many voices you can do. It doesn't matter how brilliant your microphone technique is. If you can't act, if you don't understand acting terminology, so that I can give you very simple acting notes and you can't interpret them because you don't know the words, then you're not going to be able to be hired. So that's first and foremost. And when you watch shows, a lot of shows like Batman, Superman, Justice League, you'll see that the majority of characters aren't doing major character voices. They are just acting with their voices. A lot of people who move into this field smoothly or more smoothly than others are people who have stage experience. Yeah. So aside from taking acting classes, get some stage work under your belt. Do stage work. And it's because that energy is slightly pumped up energy. You know, uh, TV and film actors tend to work very small because the camera and the microphones in that pick up everything very, very uh, intensely. And so some film actors that I've worked with have had to say bigger, more, give mm-hmm. me more, be broader. You're, you're working too small. Stage actors tend to work about the right energy because they understand reaching the back row. They understand that slightly pumped up energy. And then once you've got acting under your belt and some stage experience under your belt, then come to Los Angeles and take voiceover classes, specifically voiceover classes for animation. And don't study privately first. Study with other actors because you learn so much Mm -hmm. from watching other actors work. And, you know, I like, uh, and you've probably heard me say this many times, I like ensemble recordings, which is having all the actors in the room at the same time. Oh, yeah. Because you can react to what the other actors are doing. And when you're in a class with other actors, you can react to them when you do a scene together. Uh, When I do a recording session and I have all the actors there, I can run a scene two, three times. We know if it works. When I have to record actors individually, I may have to record 10 to 15 takes of every line to get as Hmm. many versions as might be compatible with the next actor who's going to come in and has the line following or the line preceding that line. Um, So I have to record more when I record actors separately. My point is, when taking acting classes with or, or voiceover classes with multiple people, you learn from them, you can react from the, to them when you're doing scenes together, and, and it just gives you a different energy. Then if you want to take private classes, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Then the next step is putting together a demo, getting a really good demo, a demo that represents the voice work that you do 
the best and the voices that you do that are unlike what everybody else out there is doing, what you do that is perfect and unique. Um, no, we don't need to hear another Margaret Hamilton witch. We want to hear your brand yeah. new take on a witch. Um, and then any wonderful impressions and singing and character and all that kind of stuff and get a really good demo. Then that demo goes out to agents and then you get signed with an agent and then that agent submits you to all the auditions that are going in around town. And then you get incredibly famous and you thank me when you win your first Emmy. <laughs> yes, That's there the you process. go. All right, there you go, Michael. Thank Andrea. Make sure to do that. You bet. <laughs> so you let's bet. go back to Mark Hamill because you actually gave him his big voiceover break, right? I did. I was lucky enough to give a lot of people yeah, that voiceover break. Yeah, you that were. makes me really happy. Yeah. Mark contacted me um, when I was at Warner Brothers through his agent. And, um, you know, it was a very large agency, and the agent got on the phone with me and said, Andrea, I represent Mark Hamill, and he is an enormous Batman fan, and he <laughs> would very much like to be a part of the Batman series. Now, I had no idea at that time what, how big a fan Mark was of animation in general, mm -hmm. of the DC universe, of the superhero universe. I had no idea. You know, you look at the biggest fans now because you see them at Comic-Cons, but long before any people were collecting on that level, Mark Hamill was collecting, wow. and I've seen his collection. He's got a pool house that is completely filled with collectibles, <laughs> and I'm sure that that's that way because his wife, Mary Lou, said, get all of this stuff out of the house. <laughs> if we have to build another dwelling in order to have all of your stuff someplace, let's do that. But I mean, he's got a collection of, of art and memorabilia that's second to none in the universe. But I knew nothing of this. All I knew was that Mark wanted to come and play. So as I'm casting the next couple of episodes of Batman the Animated Series, I looked for a nice, juicy part for Mark. And there was a really cool character, and I, I brought him in, and he's the kind of character, as I recall, that... Um, he was not what he appeared to be. He was this executive, and we thought he was a good guy, and at the end we find out he's really a bad guy. And I thought, okay, that's a role that Mark can sink his teeth into. Mm -hmm. And he did a wonderful job. And at the end of the session, he pulls me over, and he says, thank you for the gig, and I'm so grateful to have been a part, but I really want to be a part of the animated series. And so I got it. That meant he wanted a recurring role. He wanted to be uh, more of the series. And and during that first recording session, he was so wonderful and played with the other actors and was so generous with his Star Wars stories. And of course, that's what everybody wants to of hear course. about. And, and, but, and everybody was blown away with his, his performance. And so um, then, not long after, the thing with Tim Curry happened. We had to replace him. Now, it presented a very specific challenge because we already had at least three or four episodes with Tim's voice in production, meaning the animation was already well into being done. And what I had to find was an actor who could create the voice of the Joker, make it his own, but could fit it into the mouth flaps created by Tim Curry's mm. timing yes. because the animation was already complete and there was no way that we could afford to reanimate an uh -huh. entire episode. So the audition process for this was not just having the actor come up with a voice and, and create the character of the Joker, but then after that, we had to have them look at the episode and do a handful of lines matching Tim's mouth flaps. And it was an episode where Tim actually sang in the episode as well. It was a Christmas episode, as I recall. Wow, yeah. And so Mark had to sing as it, it, you know, and match Tim's timing. And Mark was 
awesome. He was crazy good. I had occasion to go back and look at some of those first episodes recently, and I was blown away Hmm. with how good he was from the get-go. Because, you know, everybody gets better as we go along. Mm -hmm. We all get more comfortable with each other. Voice actors get more comfortable with the characters. The the characters evolve. Um, Everybody gets used to working with each other, and they play off of each other better. Mark was great from the get-go. He just understood this character, and he's as good as he was throughout the entire you know run of the show 25 years of doing this voice really awesome and so it, once we found mark and once he gave such a beautiful audition and there were many other very very good auditions and other people who could have played the joker but mark was the guy and he was mark hamill so it was a beautiful thing yeah exactly there's no there's no loss in that whatsoever that's right that's right so let's say you're putting together like uh, you're directing and also casting at the same time a, a dream project of yours. If you could put together a cast of six people consisting of living or dead voice actors, who would you choose? This is so very hard because and you, you I you know you were kind enough to yeah. give me this question in advance because I wanted <laughs> to think about it and limiting to that many people is so hard. First of all, and then there's a bunch of different aspects of what this would be. So if I were working with, if I could, you know, pull from the existing voiceover pool of people that are working right now, my dream cast of only six, and this is really hard and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I would put together Rob Paulson, Greg Griffin, Eric Bauza, Tress McNeil, John DiMaggio, and then I'd have to arm wrestle, you know, Jeff Bennett or Jim Cummings because they're (laughs) just both so brilliant. And that would be a dream cast. And then there's, you know, five other casts like that that I could put together. I that know. would also be yeah, a dream seriously. cast. But as I look at that group of people, I could do almost any cartoon with that group of people. You really could. If I'm dealing with voiceover actors who are no longer with us, I would put together June Foray, Mel Blanc, Dawes Butler, Don Messick, Paul Fries, and Janet Waldo. Wow. Again, I could make any cartoon in the world with those six you actors. You sure, yep, definitely. And then, and this kind of pertains to a question that you also sent me in advance, which Uh. is, again, very kind of you. (laughs) There are actors that I always wanted to work with. And while I have retired just a month or so ago, that's not to say that I will never work again. As a matter of fact, within weeks of retiring, I did go in and do a voiceover um, recording as a favor to friends who desperately needed me. And And it's not to say that I will never direct again. So some of these people I may get the chance to work with, like John Hamm. I think he's a stunning actor and capable of comedy and drama, and he's dreamy, and I want to work with him. (laughs) I never got the chance to work with Christopher Lee, and I always wanted to, and Christopher Lee would have been a perfect Rajal Ghoul, I thought. He sure would have been. I never had the chance to work with him. David Tennant, I did have the joy to work with as a character, recurring character on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and a joy to work with, but we were never in the room at the same time. He was always either in London or New York, and I would love to work with David Tennant. And speaking of DuckTales, he is the new Scooge McDuck, mm-hmm. and doing yep. a wonderful yep. job, and I think the series is wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's a very different take on that show, but it's wonderful, and I'm very happy that they're making it. Emma Thompson I want to work with, oh, want, yes. want, want to work with. Yes. Catherine O'Hara, I'd love to work with her again. I was the casting director on the completely mental misadventures of Ed Grimley that we did at Hanna-Barbera uh-huh. a yep. thousand years ago and got to work with her regularly and loved her. Eugene Levy, I'd love to work with again. 
and someone that is so weird and odd and not really part of this group at all, but I would love to work with is Alex Trebek. Wow. I adore him. <laughs> I took my husband to see a, a, a couple of tapings of, of Jeopardy. We're both huge fans of the show. I've met Alex several times at the Emmys and said, would you come and work with me? And he said, absolutely, please reach out to me. And I, up until the last day I worked, looked for a role for him. But I, I would love to, before I'm completely out of the picture, find something to work with Alex, Alex Trebek on. would be amazing. Have you ever been a Jeopardy question before? Have your name ever come up in a question? I have not been. Wouldn't that be cool? But so that many would. of my friends have, and I always reach out to them afterwards. Did you know that you were an answer <laughs> on, on Jeopardy? Sean Astin was one day, and a couple of other friends of mine. It makes me really happy when yeah. they're part of that. Yeah. So before I let you go, I want to talk about one of my favorite voice actors I don't hear much about, and that was George O'Hanlon, who was, of course, George Jetson. Tell me about working alongside him. Gosh, it was wonderful. And, you know, we made a special effort to put together the original cast of the Jetsons. Yeah. And that was Gordon Hunt and I say, sitting together and saying, let's try. Let's see. They're all still alive. And we reached out to all of them. And they all had special challenges because none of them were spring chickens anymore. And, for example, Penny Singleton, who played the voice of Jane Jetson, had dentures at this point. And so Dawes Butler, who was a teacher, worked with her to huh. teach her how to be able to to act without clicks. Wow. George O'Hanlon had had a stroke eight, mm -hmm. eight years prior to us remaking the Jetsons. So I reached out to his wife and had a long conversation with her. And she said, I don't know. Let me talk to him. I don't know. It's... You know, he's, he's kind of blind, a little bit blind from the stroke, and he doesn't really go out much. Let me talk to him. So she spoke with him overnight and called me the next morning and said, Andrea, I haven't seen him so animated, so alive, hmm. so excited wow. as when I spoke to him. And so what we would do was we would send the script. This was way back when. We would send the script many, many days in advance. Scripts never already many days in advance anymore, but we'd send them days in advance. Nancy O'Hanlon, George's wife, would read the script to him and record it on cassette. Read the whole script, top to bottom, stage directions, everything, top to bottom. When they would drive in for the recording session, um, which was a long drive, they lived way out in West Hills, they'd drive into Burbank for the session, she would play that cassette for him so he'd be familiar with the story again. And when they would get to the session, Gordon would sit in the studio with George, I would sit in the booth to monitor, and Gordon would feed him his lines and George would echo them back. Wow. And why it was so cool was that George had what we had, a voice with character, meaning he wasn't doing a character voice. You know, uh, um, Nell Blank was doing a character voice as Mr. Spacely. Mm -hmm. um, George O'Hanlon was just doing his own voice as George Jetson, and it was such a great voice. So it was key to have that quality, and Gordon would spend a great deal of time saying the line and having George echo the line back to him. And sometimes the lines were very long. And so Gordon would say, honey, the food Araka cycle. And George would say, honey, the food Araka cycle. And Gordon would say, is that a whack this week? Wow. And George would say, is that? So we, and then we would edit it together. Now we're talking reel to reel. And so the editor would have to splice that together and play it back to make sure it fit. And then it sounded like a contiguous sentence. It was phenomenal, the extra work that we all were willing to do to have George O'Hanlon be a part of the series. And then, as we were doing the feature, the, the uh, Jetsons feature, yep. George was not feeling well. We did many, many sessions. George was not feeling well. And we... Um, during, this is hard to talk about. Yeah. We, 
we were recording, and, and Gordon said, you know, George, it's just not happening today. You don't look like you're feeling well. And and he said, I'm not. And and at the beginning of the session, I had gone over and stood next to him. He said, Andrea, put your head next to mine and listen to what I'm hearing in uh-huh. my head. And you could hear, whoosh, whoosh, wow. with every heartbeat. You could literally hear the blood rushing through his head with every heartbeat. And so we said, George, we're going to postpone the session until next week when you're feeling better. And Nancy comes in, his wife comes in to take him home, and suddenly his head pitches forward into Nancy's chest. I jump on the phone and call 911. The paramedics were there within two minutes, I swear. They resuscitate him. We follow him to the hospital. The doctor tells us he's had a major stroke that he will never recover from. Oh, wow. And they let him go the next day after the family was able to come and say goodbye to him. But essentially, Tim... He died in a recording session. Yeah, yeah. And as sad as that is, it's so wonderful in that he was doing what he loved. Mm-hmm. I know we extended his life yeah. by him having something to get up for every week and come and record. And and it was kind of joyous and wonderful, and yet how remarkable that this happened while I was there in the room. Yeah. It was amazing. But he was a wonderful actor, and he had great stories. And all the actors, when they first got together in that first session, after 26 years, to see each other, that was really cool to actually have been a part of putting that together. That yeah, was no awesome. kidding. Wow. Yeah. yeah ever yeah. since I was a kid, that was one of my favorite shows was The Jetsons. It was way cool. And, you know, you look at it now, and you just go, they were so ahead of their time oh, yeah. in that. <laughs> um, you look at, like, the huge screen TVs that they were watching. Got yeah. them. And I'm, I, I'm, know, I'm, I'm wearing, still waiting for the car that folds up into a suitcase. I'm waiting <laughs> for that because I really want that one. I'm wearing an Apple Watch right now, just like they had on the show. Me too. Me too. <laughs> exactly. Those moments are so bizarre. Uh-huh. But I know that you're on a time crunch here and you want to yeah. go, but you asked me a question when you sent me these in advance, and there was one thing that I did want to say. If I, do we have time? Yeah, we do. Yeah. Okay. You asked me if I ever got starstruck. Yes. And and when I was working and an actor would come in to work for me, never, ever, ever, I was delighted to meet them. I'd get a little bit shaky inside. When I directed Steven Spielberg, it was <laughs> like, I, I think I vibrated for like a day uh-huh. because it was just so cool to direct a director of that caliber. Yep. While many people have been directed by Steven, I, you know, directed him and that was very, very cool. Um, but I went to a party that Nathan Fillion threw for his birthday, maybe Uh. two or three years ago. And he had all kinds of magnificent celebrities there. And James Brolin played his father on Castle. Yeah, okay. And James brought his wife with. And so as I turn and look, and there is Barbara Streisand standing (laughs) at this party. And never, ever, ever have I been starstruck so starstruck that I got shy and couldn't introduce myself really? to her. We had eye contact several times, and I just, I couldn't do it. I was just like a geek fan who didn't know. I was afraid I would trip over my own tongue, that I would embarrass Nathan, that I would be and that was the only time in my entire career that I've been completely starstruck. And I kick myself daily for not meeting someone for whom I have such respect. And probably would have been approachable, but I just, I didn't know how to do it. It was a shame. But that was my starstruck moment. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) I love that story. 
amazing. Well, Andre, I, I want to thank you so much for your time. And thank you. Honestly, I look back at your resume and I've been following you ever since I was like seven years old. I knew who you were when I was seven. That's odd to say, but cool, Tim. thank you so much for everything. <laughs> I look at your resume and pretty much everything on there is in my top favorite cartoons. Thank you so much. I was lucky and blessed and joyful, and I was so happy to have so many wonderful shows that asked me to come and play. Yeah, exactly. So thank you so much, and this has been True Honor. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Saturday Morning Rewind. Please check them out on Facebook and Twitter. And that's all, folks.